Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Gist Yarn and Fiber. Paula Stebbins Becker worked for more than 30 years designing woven dobby and jacquard fabrics for the residential furniture and decorative jobber trades. She also received her MFA from Cranbrook Academy of Art and continues to create and exhibit her textile work in group shows and galleries nationally. I was really lucky to get to meet Paula in Lori Carlson Steger's studio about two months ago and to see her share her work and talk about it personally. And I was so captivated by her unique style of weaving and also by the stories of experience that she has working in the textile industry. And so I'm really excited to welcome you today, Paula. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. I would love to start out by asking how you found yourself drawn towards textile design and weaving. Okay, well, um, I, I was uh, I born into a, a very middle-class, uh, humble family in northern Massachusetts and one of five children. I was a pretty quiet kid and I loved art and I could spend countless hours just making things and drawing. Um, and my grandmother sewed clothes and crocheted and taught uh, all of us those skills. Um, but I had never really thought about weaving and um, didn't really consider studying you know, design or weaving. Um, but I did want to study art. And I was very fortunate that my family always encouraged and embraced my passion for art and eventually um, I made my way to uh, Southeastern Mass University, which is now UMass Dartmouth, and studied um, uh, fine art, but with a focus on graphic design. Um, I was thinking a little more practical, and I also loved illustration. So for about a year and a half, that was my focus of study, and I had a friend at the college that majored in textile design, and I would visit with her in her studio um, in the classes and just was really intrigued by what she was making. And I was especially interested in print design because I felt like that kind of connected more with the illustration and the graphics and, um, and time. Probably, I think it was like a year and a half into my, into my education there that I decided to make the change and change my major to textile design. And uh, as I said, I thought I would focus more on print design, but I absolutely fell in love with weaving. Um, and it was interesting because the, my first weaving teacher, I don't know if you're familiar with her, was Sandra Brownlee. And she was only there at the, at the program for that one year because March Puria was on sabbatical uh, for maternity leave. And it was just like fate that I had her <laughs> In my first weaving class because she was so so important um, you know to my education but also my future which I'll, I'll get into that later um, but she had recently graduated from Cranbrook and um, she was a wonderful teacher she was so nurturing and creative and she taught us all sorts of techniques um, the class that I had with her was, was off-loom weaving, so we were learning, you know, various off-loom techniques, and she always encouraged us to work very intuitively and to tune into our senses and to find our own way of working um, so that we could express ourselves creative, creatively through the process of making. So it was, it was very, um, I don't know, very uh, personal and um, although we were learning you know very specific techniques there was just a lot of like soul searching in it and, and, and just it was meditative it was really really a wonderful class um, another important thing that she she asked us to do was to keep a notebook of daily thoughts and observations and I still have that notebook and she um, asked us to, you know, jot down daily um, observations that we had, inspirations and sketches, you know, all sorts of things um, that inspired us. Um, and also, having come from Cranbrook, she shared with us her work and 
introduced us to the work of a lot of fiber artists that w went through Cranbrook and other places. And uh, I now kind of looking back on it, I, I think how fortunate I was to have had Sandra as my first weaving teacher. I never really thought at that time of expressing myself as an artist through weaving. I was more focused on the practical side of art and design and weaving, you know, as a personal expression, kind of like the writings in the notebook, um, really was important to me at that time and still is. And another thing that's really important um, for that I had Sandra there um, as my first teacher. She more or less became my mentor, I guess. Um, but I made myself a goal at age 20, and I can't remember whether I told her this or not. I probably did. But she influenced me so much that I wanted, and I had made set a goal that I would one day apply to Cranbrook for my MFA. Um, so, you know, at that time, I had a ways to go, but I had set myself that goal. So um, that's kind of my beginning, I guess, with, um, with weaving and textiles. And what did you do after you graduated from undergrad? Did you go into a textile industry job right away or...? Um, after I graduated, I did, yes. Uh, I, uh, Marge Perrier came back into the program, obviously, after, after uh, Sandra left. And she really um, was a great teacher and knew so much about handloom weaving and drafting and design. And uh, her knowledge of historical textiles was really strong. We worked on portfolios within the program. Um, she brought in a lot of alumni. Uh, to meet with us throughout the four years, um, and I actually contact connected with one of the alumni, um, Nancy Machado, who's also a really dear friend. I think you met her actually, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and she she came in and talked to us about her job. And like every year or so, I, she would come in. Different people would come in, and we stayed connected. And I think it was, gosh, it was like end of the first semester of my my senior year at at SMU, UMass Dartmouth, she contacted me that the company she had been working with in New Jersey was looking for uh, an entry-level designer. And I decided to apply, and I went on the interview, and I ended up getting the job. So I knew, knew I had a job fairly early, which was such a relief. <laughs> um, and it was in New Jersey. It was working for a company... Um, called Craft Tech, I'm sorry, Chromatex Mills. Um, they were in northern New Jersey, just outside of New York City. I really wanted to, to leave my area. I wanted to have an experience near the city. Ideally, I thought New York City, but in the end, um, I'm glad that I was in the outskirts because I think it was a little easier for me. Um, it was close enough that I could go in and out of the city on the weekends, but that the uh, mill uh, for Chromatex was actually in Hazelton, Hazelton Pennsylvania. Um, so we would we worked in northern New Jersey on design, and then we would travel, I don't know, a couple times a month to the mill. Uh, so the looms weren't right there you know, with us, um, which was, was kind of a bummer. I, I really, really loved the idea of working in an actual mill. Um, but I learned a lot. I mostly designed dobby fabrics at, in that first job. A lot of plain fabrics, textures, stripes. I, I don't even really recall designing any jacquards. Um, so it was a little limiting and I knew that I didn't want to stay there too long. Um, also the quality of the fabric was a more commercial so it wasn't um, as decorative, and I had heard, you know, in the industry that if you kind of stay too long in one place, you, you sort of your portfolio sort of, you know, reflects that work, you know, and that quality of work. And I knew that I wanted to eventually work for a more decorative mill. So I stayed there for about a year and a half, started to interview, and then ended up in Philadelphia um, at Craft Text Mills which was a great, um, beautiful uh, mill. Um, it was right in the center of the city. It, I think it was founded in the 1920s by um, the Blum and Cedar families. It went through three generations 
uh, and eventually now it is closed, but at the time um, there was a little bit of weaving going on in the mill, uh, mostly sample weaving, but for the most part, uh, the production and the main part of the weaving was woven again in upstate Pennsylvania. So once again, you know, I was, I was in a place where the design studios were, the sales offices and that sort of thing. But I wasn't like hands on with the loom on a day to day basis. Um, but um, it was a great place. I learned a lot there. They, they designed um, very decorative uh, upholstery fabrics, a lot of what we call tapestry um, uh, qualities, like warps that had multiple colored ends. Um, that with the jacquard loom, you know, every end is is uh, uh, independently uh, raised, um, usually like on a twenty-seven inch repeat. So you had multiple ends of colors that you could bring up and weaves uh, combined with other colors so that you could create really beautiful patterns um, and tapestry looks. They also um, worked with the, um, the decorative jobber and the contract jobbers um, in, you know, all over the country. And that was kind of where I focused. I, a lot of my work was smaller scale patterns, some of those little tapestries, dobbies, jack cards, um, for the jobber customers in New York City um, and I would travel with the salespeople to New York to meet with like Kravitz, Stroheim, uh, um, Maharam, Noel, some of those names might be familiar. So we would work with them directly on some custom product or some custom colors. Um, that was a really, really great job and I love living in Philadelphia too. <laughs> so. What were, what were yeah. the most creatively challenging pieces of those jobs? Hmm. Most creative challenging. Well, um, well, at that time, I have to say, at Craft Techs, uh, we were still working on point paper. <laughs> I, could, I wish that I had some of those to look at. But, yeah. we, you know, that was a challenge because at, at SMU, UMass Dartmouth, um, they did it, it's not like RISD, so they didn't have like big jacquard programs. They didn't have jacquard looms for us to work on. So I have to say my training from that school was not strong in jacquard. It was, it was definitely strong in weave structure, um, in color, you know, and, and other things. But the jacquard, I, had, I really had to kind of you know, learn that on the job. And that first job at craft text where I really did design jack cards um, that was the, the challenge for me and as time went on you know of course I, I became proficient in that you know not an expert maybe but but certainly um, had uh, learned a lot and and in time you know we, we uh, transitioned over to uh, the computer uh, programs which made it easier as well so yeah, that's... that's great. And so you spent a few years working in the industry and then you went to go get your MFA. Is that right? Yeah, that was actually after Craft Techs. I, um, I had worked, I guess it was six years total in industry. Felt that, you know, that goal that I had set for myself, uh, my husband and I, you know, hadn't started a family yet. And I kind of felt like, you know, it's the time for me to do it and apply and just see if I get in. And the program was, I think, 12 to 15 people um, in the fiber department. And I, I knew that it was a long shot, but I had um, some, some great um, people in my life that, you know, that, that supported me, including Sandra. She actually um, ended up living back in Philadelphia, which was kind of ironic. Here I was in Philly and reconnected with her. And then it was through Sandra that I met Bhakti. Um, and a few other people, Warren Seelig, there was a great group of Cranbrook alumni right there in Philly. So they, they mentored me and advised me a little bit, you know, about how to build up my portfolio and wrote me letters of recommendation. And I think that that was really helpful. 
So I did, I did end up um, being accepted there and I relocated um, to Michigan. Um, ended up living off campus with a wonderful family um, that made it easier for me being a married student. My husband unfortunately couldn't find work, so he stayed in Philly. So that was, you know, that was a little challenging, but we worked through it. And to be honest with you, it was such an intense program that in a, in a way it was probably better that he was, you know, back where he was comfortable with his job and friends and, and our family. So um, that worked out pretty well. Um, but yeah, Cranbrook, um, gosh, there's like so much to say about it. But <laughs> mm-hmm. I, um, I, I felt like it was, you know, just... Uh, a natural progression for me um, to go there, uh, but I have to also say that it was it was challenging, and um, it could be it was a little little difficult at times um, because I had come from the industry, and I guess I thought that maybe some of the other people there might have come from that background as well, but most of them. Um, were working more conceptually and I had come from more of a practical design background so it was a little difficult for me at first to transition. Um, I, as a designer and a weaver I had developed an aesthetic for color and design and I had solid technical skills and was confident in my craft and, and make, in the process of making things but I had little experience with conceptual work and. I struggled uh, with projecting meaning into my work and articulating my message. Um, but I have to say that um, I felt like I had a lot of support there. Again, with Gerhardt and Odell, who was the head of the, the department. Um, some of the students, you know, some of the students not so much. They, I felt like, you know, in critiques especially, um, I was quiet and maybe wasn't contributing as much as I should have because I was just sort of taking it all in. Um, But I think that all that challenge and all of what I went through there really pushed me in the direction of the work that I'm making now. Um, And I'd kind of like to tell you a story about how that happened, if it's okay. Yeah, please. Please do. Um, Yeah, it it was the second semester at Cranbrook. And are you familiar with Anne Hamilton? She's a pretty well-known fiber artist. Um, she does a lot of installation work, and mm. um, she, she's, um, she came, actually, as, as a visiting artist. And um, she spent a few days with us and took the time to speak with each of us one-on-one in our studio and you know, look at our work and give us feedback. Um, I think at that time I was... I was in the process of weaving a textile that was inspired by a photograph of my grandfather that I, my mom had given me. And um, he was, it was a black and white photo and he was all dressed up in his suit and in front of his home. Um, so it was like behind him was the architecture of the house with the, the windows and the Venetian blinds and I think it was a porch and just the architectural uh, aspects of the the house behind him and his suiting fabric really inspired me and also just his gesture of how he was standing. So I hand dyed linen, cotton, warp yarns and weft yarns uh, with indigo and black walnut dyes and I threaded my loom kind of randomly to mix up the colors. So I was in the process of weaving this piece when she came into my studio and I spoke with her, you know, about how I wanted to capture the texture and the color from his suit and also blending it with the architecture in the photograph. And sitting next to my um, loom was a basket of fabric remnants because I, I collected a lot of bits and pieces of fabrics um, from, you know, for years. And also I collected old photographs. So uh, some of the photographs were pinned on the wall, the fabrics were mainly in the basket. And she noticed it and she said, gee, you know, what are you doing with that? And I just told her, you know, about my background as a designer and that I collected the fabrics and really loved vintage vintage uh, materials and designs. 
and uh, that I had been thinking about a way of, that I could incorporate them into my work, but you know, I wasn't really sure yet how to do that. And she suggested, and all she said was, why don't you use the threads from the fabrics in your weavings? And it was like all of a sudden the light bulb went off and mm-hmm. I thought, oh my gosh, yeah. Um, it was a real turn, turning point for me. And soon after, I took those some of those fabrics. First, I experimented with them by cutting them into strips. And then I started to unravel entire pieces of fabrics, which was really, really uh, time-consuming and um, very difficult <laughs> at times. Um, and eventually, I unraveled the, the fragments, uh, but partially unraveled them. And I took some of the threads that I had completely unraveled and added them into my as weft into my weavings. And then I was also experimenting with taking the partially unraveled materials and incorporating them into the weavings as well. So, um, yeah, and, and it just kind of grew from there. Um, and a whole new body of work came from that. And I, I just felt like, I, wow, if I hadn't been there, and she hadn't been there speaking with me at that time, I don't know, maybe I would have eventually figured it out, but uh, it just makes me realize how important those connections and conversations are along the way in your life. Um, So, anyway. (laughs) Wow, and that really did have a life-changing impact on your work because that's, that's still a motif and theme that you're working with today, right? It is, it is. I, I, you know, sometimes um, will work with some of the fragments in a different way where I don't unravel them, but I, I put them into the fabric um, with supplementary warps or wefts or sometimes we'll hand stitch things. But I really like, if I can, to actually weave it because I'm a weaver <laughs> and it just, it, to me, it creates a, a, a different, um, different tension um, when you're weaving it into the fabric than if you just like stitch it on top of the fabric. And how do you select those base fabrics that you're unweaving and then weaving with? Well, I, what I do is I have, still have, you know, the, the, the baskets and filled with all these fabrics and I have um, boxes with photographs and I have some that I, I'll go through them periodically. Um, sometimes I'll start with a photograph that inspires me. And then I'll go through my basket of, of fragments and textiles and find one that speaks, you know, and connects with that photograph for me. Um, and may, and it's, sometimes it's more than one. Um, and then I think about it and uh, just start to, to unravel uh, the pieces. Also look around me, you know, in my all of my things. I'm kind of a messy weaver. <laughs> I have I have like little bits of yarns and little bits of things that I just collect. So I might find something, a little bit of indigo dyed yarn that I want to also incorporate in the piece. So I'll collect all of the materials um, and, and put them together with, with the, um, the photo and look at it for a while. Think about it. Sometimes, you know, I'll do a little bit of sketching um, or I'll write sometimes some ideas down, um, but I have to say that it comes together very intuitively on the loom. Um, when I start to begin to make the piece, it, it's, it, it grows, it, it evolves, you know, kind of intuitively. Um, and I will also um, often finish, you know, a part of the weaving and then I cut it off the loom. Um, and then I look for another piece of fabric and I turn my work and I weave or I unravel the, the piece that I already wove on the loom, unravel that and reweave it in again, sometimes in, on a totally different warp. So it becomes this layering and this sort of collaging of, of all of these various pieces of textile that create layers. Um, 
And I know intuitively when it's ready, when it's finished, and I know when it's not too. So it can take a long time and, and it's a process. And that's really what I love about my work. You know, I, I don't necessarily have a clear plan. It's sort of like that journaling, right? Like that writing and, and, and thinking about, you know, observations along the way and, and how they come together in the end to make that, that final work. Yeah, your your work is so evocative and beautiful, and I'm going to include some photos of it in the show notes on my website so people can, can see exactly what you're referring to, because I think it is hard to imagine, and it's, it's really just stunning and beautiful to look at. I'm curious, um, my, I believe after your MFA, you you continued working in the industry, and I'm curious how your artistic practice influenced your design industry work and, and vice versa. Mm, that's always a really hard question um, for me to, 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 to articulate. Um, gosh, you know, I do think that they come together. I think when I'm making my artwork, I certainly am, you know, thinking about color and, and obviously leave structures that I might also use um, in my design work. And I'm sure I'm influenced by the research that I, that I do for my design work and vice versa. Um, but it's, in a, in a lot of ways, it's really separate too. I think more so like in my in my heart and in my soul they're separate it's like i have although i love them both so much uh i feel more connected you know as an artist to my artwork and i kind of don't it's freeing for me you know to get away from the computer to get away from the process of designing when i'm at the loom it's just so totally free and i I don't often think about my designing. It's like, other than maybe color choices and and uh, the way that I, you know, might put together some structures. But yeah, I, I, um, I mean, after I left Cranbrook, I can go through a little bit of, you know, what went my path like from there. I I went back to Philly and I, I taught adjunct um, um, at Philadelphia. Philadelphia College of Textiles and Sciences with Bhakti for a while, and that was really great. Um, that allowed me, you know, to, to share some of the things that I had learned and experienced at Cranbrook with the students, and most of those students were going into design, so I could really, like, use, you know, my, and bridge together my, my design time, you know, and my, my experience at Cranbrook, so that was really a special time and it's interesting how like you know years later when I got back into the industry I ended up working with some of my students that I had in that in my those weaving classes at that time um, and uh, yeah so I basically I think I was in Philly for about a year maybe a year and a half and then I had a phone call from um, actually the salesperson that I worked with at Craftex his name was Jerry Newman, great guy. He called me and said, Paula, there's a job that's perfect for you, and it's right close to where you grew up, um, and you've got to look into it. It's at Stevens Linen, Guilford, Maine, um, and you got to make a phone call and, and go check it out. And I really hadn't considered taking on a full-time job. I thought that I might might go into teaching and, and freelancing, perhaps. Um, but after I made the phone call, after I made the trip, and I met with um, Mel Sherman, who was um, the VP of product design there, I just was like, I loved it. And the mill actually is a mill that's south of Worcester, not far from where I grew up. And I had done an internship there when I was in school. So I was familiar with the place. But the company um, was family owned at the time when I was there as an intern, and they sold it to Guilford, Maine. They renovated the building and the space of the design studio was amazing. It was the fifth floor of this big old granite mill building with wonderful views, um, big huge windows, re newly renovated. 
and such an amazing, inspiring space uh, that I was like, wow, you know, this is this is really a good opportunity. I, I have to go for this. And a couple people that were there I knew um, still, uh, some of the designers and some of the weavers. So it was familiar. It was closer to home. And I worked there um, for, I guess, was it maybe five years? I And it was actually my first experience as a manager because I had my MFA um, I was able to step into, you know, a higher position and um, they hired me as a design director um, and I worked closely with a small team of really great designers and Mel Sherman, who was the VP of product design, really embraced that I had experience as an artist as well as a designer and he was so supportive. Um, and help me kind of develop my management and business skills because that was the hardest part. That was the challenge for me there was, you know, I had never managed a team of people before. Um, so that was a little bit scary, um, but it went well and I had a great team and I learned just as much from them as they probably did from me. So uh, that was that was my, my next step you know, uh, back into the industry uh, from Cranbrook. Hmm. And you, you know, you've seen the textile industry in the United States change, change so much over the course of your career. I'm, I'm curious, what was it like to be in the midst of that? Yeah, I, I, as I mentioned um, a little bit earlier, um, when I first started in the mid-1980s, um, many of the designs were still drafted on paper. Um, you know, we... The, the, there were some CAD systems, but for the most part, it was all drafted on paper. And also the looms um, had uh, not become totally dig digitized yet. They were, you know, still uh, some of the punch card uh, looms. Uh, so they, you know, wove much slower. The products, you know, were chunkier, I would say, at, at that time, maybe not as refined. Um, the style of the fabrics back in the 80s and even into the early 90s were, you know, there was a mix, but a lot of the styles were more traditional. Um, and then as time went on, they became more modern. And, you know, now I'd say, you know, modern is, is fresher and more, more uh, is in more so than traditional types of fabrics. So in that sense, you know, in style, uh, things evolved and changed over the 30 years. Um, and then, of course, uh, unfortunately, over time, um, with much of the, you know, the industry moving to China, um, many of the companies downsized and many of them closed. And unfortunately, it's like every company that I worked for no longer exists. It's like <laughs> every one of them, other than Guilford Domain. Guilford Domain still exists, but they did they did close the Stevens Linen uh, division uh, maybe two decades ago. And then Quaker, it was two thousand and seven uh, when Quaker closed. So it's changed a lot and um, I'm really really fortunate that I'm, I'm still here <laughs> and still designing um, but Quaker was a really cool place too I I, I um, that was my last my last uh, job full-time job in the industry and I don't know if you want me to talk about that at all but yeah sure I'd go for share it. that a little bit um, yeah it was um, it was at one time the largest producer of, of chenille yarns and fabrics. It was a very successful company. The president, Larry Liebenau, uh, was a, a really nice person and he set very high standards for quality and outstanding design. Uh, and I was very fortunate to be a part of that. And I was hired um, by uh, B. Spires, who was the vice president of design as the director of design for, for the decorative jobber market. And the, the way that it was structured there, there were uh, various divisions. And I guess there were maybe about four or five of us that, that oversaw each division. 
and then we had you know a number of designers that worked under under us um, or with us and we um, created a huge amount of our textiles I mean I think the line two seasons a year each line probably had 200 to 300 fabrics it was amazing amount of product um, everyone worked really, really hard, including our boss B. She like rolled up her sleeves right beside us and was such a gifted merchandiser and manager and she really empowered all of the people there with confidence and you know, she didn't micromanage, she really left us to you know, to be free um, in our creativity. So it was a really pretty cool place. Um, and really lucky that, that that I was able to work there. Quaker was was sort of a dynasty in the industry. <laughs> you know, being being such a huge design team and um, very very successful. Yeah. Did you interact daily with the people who were on the manufacturing floor, the workers there, or what was that interaction like? At that the only mill that I worked for that was directly connected with um, the weavers and the and the looms was the Stevens Linen Guild mm. for the Main job and yeah there we would it was great because you know you would send down your design and they would call you when it was when it was on the loom you would go down and you would be standing right there with the weaver and you could see it weaving and sometimes you'd say okay stop I want to change a color I want to change a yarn and it was fun because you know the designers would grab the cones of yarn and hand it to the weaver that put it on the loom and you know try maybe weave another like you know 20 inches or whatever and you could decide whether you wanted to make more changes and then sometimes you take it upstairs you know and and uh and look at it for a while and adjust some weaves or make make some changes to the pattern and run and eventually weave another trial but but quaker um they they did have the sample weaving downstairs. I, I was wrong about that. They do, they did the main mill mills were in different buildings, but they did have sample weaving downstairs. But because it was like a three, two, three shifts, sometimes, you know, your your design would be weaving in the middle of the night, or um, you, know, you weren't always around. So once in a while, they would call you down, but for the most part, they would you know send daily. They would send up samples of like we call them trials of the first the first run of a design and then you could look at it and make changes and then resubmit it to be you know have it woven again um i'd be happy to go through kind of a pro the process of of the, the day to day if you'd like for a designer yeah i think that would be yeah. interesting to people yeah please especially do. at quaker i i feel like you know such a big company and it was very organized um, and it definitely was a system there so yeah, the, the designers, um, the people that were hired as designers definitely had to have the basic understanding of, of weaves, you know, structure, complex weave structure. Um, some did have experience with jacquard, some did not. And again, you know, that could be taught and you could kind of gain that experience as a designer, an entry level designer working, you know, at a mill. Um, it was really important to understand, you know, the yarn sizes, the fabric density, um, fiber content. And I found when, when I was hiring new people, I really looked closely to see how their sense of color was and their understanding of color theory, because I think that's really important. Because in the end, the color is just as important to the sales of the fabric as the, the structure and the weave. Um, so with a jacquard, you know, you're, 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 you're blending the different yarns with the weaves. So, you know, every color in the artwork is, represents a weave and um, how you put those weaves together, you know, with different colored yarns um, really can make a difference on what the end product looks like. And there's just so many possibilities. So oftentimes as a designer, you might try a few different options using the same artwork. You might, you know, try it on a couple of different warps, and you might, you know, blend the weaves differently and run trials, and then decide, you know, how you like it, and show it to your, 
your uh, director, show it to the team, we talk about it, um, we make decisions together sometimes. So um, we would begin every season um, at Quaker with an inspiration trip, which was really, really nice. <laughs> they, we'd mm. take, take our group, like I had like say four designers working with me and we would take a train into New York City for a couple of days and go through um, various retail stores, go to some museums, just get a feel for the vibe, you know, the, the culture, the, what's happening at that time. Um, certainly, you know, researching trends in fashion and pop culture, color. And then we would come back um, with, you know, those ideas. Sometimes we'd purchase a few things for inspiration. And then we also, at that time, would go through magazines, right? Because it's like, you know, there were tons of magazines. A lot of, we, we purchased uh, a lot of magazines that were European magazines as well. And together, we'd go through magazines, tear out pages, put categories together for trends, and eventually we'd make trend boards. And those trend boards would filter down into, you know, what we decided our themes would be or our trends would be for that particular season. And then we bought a lot of our art from various artists that created repeat artwork, um, like at Surtex. I don't know if you've ever been to Surtex in New York. Um, those artists would come usually to Quaker and they would show us their portfolios. And we already had our trend board ideas together and we would decide, okay, you know, this artwork would fit here, that artwork would work well here. So we would purchase artwork and, and sometimes documents too and um, put, put it all together. And then each designer had a marketing plan that was developed, you know, with design director, which was myself, I was the design director. So we would work together on the marketing plans and then a marketing plan involved like the construction, the price point, the artwork, um, and the collections that they might fit into. So um, from there, they would begin to develop their designs. And um, then uh, we would approve a design based on a few things, you know, obviously had to pass pass the testing, you know, for abrasion and tilling and all that. And then the price point had to be within reason, you know, if we had targeted price point. And sometimes what would happen is if it was too expensive, the designer would take it back and take out a couple of picks, change the yarn, you know, just var vary it a little bit so that the price point was a little bit lower. Um, as long as it passed testing. And then we would reweave uh, the changes made. And if it was a go, then the designer would weave up a color blanket of usually, I don't know, sometimes 20 color combinations that was woven on a blanket warp. And it was really fun going through blankets because you just you know see all the variations of how the colors cross over all the warps. So that was always really fun, and you cut up, cut up the blankets, and then narrow it down to maybe six or eight colors that you would go forward with for the for the season. So that's pretty much the process. <laughs> that's great. Thanks for sharing that. You know, I have I have so many more questions. I feel like I could talk to you all day about your artwork and about your industry experience, but I know we have to wrap up soon. Do you have time for me to ask you two more questions? Oh my gosh, yeah. I, w I definitely want to talk to you more about my artwork because that's really important. Um, yeah, well, that was one of my questions. I'm really curious. Yeah, can you describe the kind of work you weave in the process of weaving it? My, so my work is mainly about memory. Um, the process of weaving acts as a meta metaphor for memory. And the passing of each thread builds a solid plane of cloth just as each experience contributes to a complete life form through memory. Over time, um, our memories fade and become fragmented. And as memories and stories are retold, they accumulate new layers of meaning. So each personal history is a hybrid of experience and every new experience is layered with existing memory. Uh, so for me, as I unravel uh, a cloth, I re-enter memory. 
Um, I, I have um, personally experienced how memory can fade and unravel. Uh, my mom suffered from Alzheimer's disease, and gradually she lost her memory. And to help her remember, my family uh, and friends sent her photographs and wrote her letters about their experiences that they shared together. And my sisters and I, we compiled the letters and the photographs in a, a book, and we gave it to my mom for her 75th birthday. She loved it, and, and my dad told us um, that she looked at it every day. Um, and as she read the stories and, and looked closely at the photographs, it, she was able to reconnect with, with her memories. And um, yeah, so my work, I, I, I'm drawn to textiles and to photographs that have a phys physical history. Uh, for example, um, a piece of clothing or a silk scarf accumulates the visible evidence of, of daily use, and a photograph captures a specific moment in time, and every time that we look back at that photograph, we revisit that memory. And when I use textiles and photographs that I've found, I, I'm always curious as to who, who they belong to and what are the memories connected to each of those pieces. Um, a photograph and a textile, uh, they kind of offer me a rich beginning for a story and it gives me a chance to recreate the memory. So the relationship between the person or the place in the photo and the textile represents a portrait or a snapshot of a specific moment in time. Um, so when I begin with a piece of cloth and a photograph, I work freely um, without an exact picture in my mind of the final work. And I deconstruct and unravel the textile, and then I reweave the threads, combining them with new threads, merging the old with the new. And this change in structure translates the meaning and the form of the original fabric. Um, and during the process of reweaving, the, uh, the fragile unraveled threads are supported and, and woven into the vertical warp threads. And it often results in kind of an unexpected tension. And each piece takes on its own life. I like to work intuitively, de deconstructing and inserting supplementary wefts and playing with color and texture as I weave. And I'm inspired by the subject in the photograph and the cloth will just sort of take its own shape. And my hope is that it will reveal the essence of the person or the place within the photograph. I like to use silk and linen yarns and will often use indigo dyed yarns. And I save remnants of fabric and old warps and bits of thread. If I see a color or a yarn that I love, um, I'll add it to my weaving. And uh, my work is developed on the loom and I work intuitively. Um, and when the piece is complete, I just, I just know it's complete. And after the work is off the loom, I sometimes further embellish the surface with embroidery and beading. And each weaving is unique, um, and that's what I really love about my work. And my hope is that the final textile will embody the mood and the spirit of the person and the place that was depicted in the photograph. So viewed together, the weaving and the photograph create a visual metaphor, which the viewer translates through their own experience. One thing I really loved about our conversation just now is how much you were referencing and appreciating the impact of your teachers and mentors on your life. And we haven't had time to really talk about it, but I know you're also a teacher and have influenced many weavers. And I'm curious, what is like an overarching piece of advice or wisdom that you share to weavers that you work with? Definitely to connect with people um, and to find a mentor uh, and it can be more than one along the way, but uh, I know we can connect with people through Facebook and, you know, on social media, and I think that's wonderful, but also just to connect with people face-to-face. -face. Um, I, I find that as I grow older, I look back and I see more clearly how my personal collect connections with teachers, artists, designers, friends, even strangers have guided me and, and sometimes pushed me in new directions. Um, I had a friend one time, a long time ago, that told me, you know, 
his words of wisdom, which is the most important part of life is not the re is reaching your goal, but it's the journey along the way, um, and the people that you meet, the, and the experiences that you gather, um, that, that enriches our lives, and and also you know for us to give back in that way and. Um, by connecting with other people, it gives us the opportunity to also share our knowledge and talent with others and hopefully plant a few seeds along the way that will inspire someone and help them, you know, to grow um, in their career or in their life in, in whatever way. So, yeah, I think, you know, just step away from your computers, step away from um, social media and you know, do things in your life that's going to connect you with people and, and just be open to, to everything. And just take it all in. <laughs> so. I will take that advice to heart. Thank you so much <laughs> for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it too. That's a wrap. You can find photos of Paula's gorgeous and evocative work in the show notes at www.gistyarn.com slash episode 18. That's G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N.com. Next week on the podcast, I'm talking to Marianne Moody. Marianne is a fiber artist and weaver in Melbourne, Australia, and much beloved in our weaving community as an artist, author, and teacher. Tune in next Monday to hear our conversation, and until next time, happy weekend.